Hi, everyone. Uh, let's go into the time of the sermon. Uh, today's sermon is titled, uh, Be Near Jesus. Be Near Jesus. And we'll look at Mark 3, uh, verses 20 through 35. And let me read it for us uh, as God's word. Um, and we'll go right into the time of the message. It's found in Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35. It says, Then he went home, Jesus went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by uh, Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against, his, against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever uh, blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother? And my brothers. And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. That is the word of God. Uh, let's pray together and let's go right into the time of the message. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time. Thank you for. Um, just the, the sheer fact of you, know, you being a giver, a faithful giver to us. And we are always receivers. We cannot outgive you. And as we uh, enter into the, the Christmas season where we get to reflect upon uh, the greatest gift that you have given us, Jesus Christ, uh, may we um, are reminded uh, that uh, you are a faithful God to us. Um, all the way from our uh, you know, infant stage to even our deathbed, you will be faithful. And now as we uh, strive to be faithful um, to you, um, we want to hear from you. Uh, so may you speak to us through this time. Uh, use me to be clear in what you have to say to us. But thank you for this time, God. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have three points, and these three points are, in fact, different groups 
uh, that we find in the in the story, uh, three different you know people uh, groups around Jesus, and we'll see how they respond to Jesus. So those are the three points. Uh, first, the earthly family of Jesus. Second, the scribe, and the third, the disciples. So please follow along with me. First, the earthly family of Jesus. Verse twenty. And he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. Here, home is likely uh, the ministry base for Jesus in Capernaum, uh, which is really the house of Simon and Andrew. And as usual, as we have seen, many people are cramming into this house, small house, uh, in order to hear from Jesus and see him perform some miracles and you know, especially exorcism. And verse 21, And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. Here appears uh, Jesus' biological family, the earthly family. Uh, we'll see that uh, these are uh, the mother of Jesus and his brothers and sisters. Of course, uh, the brothers and sisters are half uh, brothers and sisters because Christmas says that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, not between you know, Joseph and Mary. That's why they're half. Um, and we also see that Joseph is absent, meaning that most likely he has died early on. Um, so that's the context here. And we hear right away that the family is not happy with Jesus. The question then is, why are they not happy with Jesus? Uh, there are a few reasons here, two reasons, in fact. One, you know, as a conservative Jewish family, uh, this family had expectations on Jesus. Uh, again, Joseph has died, most likely, so that you know, Jesus, being the eldest brother, had the responsibility on behalf of Joseph in this you know, you know, patriarchal society. He, as an you know, oldest male, had the obligation to carry on the family's business, which is carpentry for this family, and he had to provide for them. But where is Jesus in our story, in this book? He is in Capernaum, as opposed to his hometown, Nazareth, meaning he is living separately from his family, and he's not really providing for his family. So that's one reason. And the second reason is this. You know, Jesus was supposed to care about the honor and reputation of this family. You know, back then, it's a shame and honor culture. So it's very important that, you know, you have the good reputation from society, from your community, uh, because if you lose the reputation, then you're doomed. You know, the the whole society can shun you uh, and and label you as worthless. Uh, Because, you know, if one or two families you know, go out of the line and ruin the, the whole society, then, you know, the whole society can be doomed. So that's that important. Um, and, and now, does he just do anything about that? You know, is he working for the honor of the family? Uh, probably not, because, um, you know, we see that he's pretty popular among the crowd, uh, and yet, you know, he keeps getting in trouble with the authorities, such as, you know, Pharisees and, you know, scribes. As, as we'll see very soon. Uh, so what that means is he's about to bring huge shame to uh, the family. 
So because of these reasons, possible reasons, the family is not happy. And when they have had enough, you know, we see them take off, uh, going from Nazareth to Capernaum to seize Jesus, to bring him back home and make him do what he's supposed to be doing, um, you know, to meet their expectations. So that's the context here. You know, we see that the family is not being supportive of Jesus. And that's surprising, perhaps, to us because we expect family to be supportive to what members do. But, you know, Jesus is not getting that. And interestingly, Mark uh, illustrates this distance that the family and Mark has, or uh, family and Jesus has, uh, in this way. So jump down to verse 31 and 32. We read, uh, And his mother and his brother came, and standing outside, uh, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. So we, we, we see the repetition of the word outside. What that means is that there's this crowd that's inside of the house and near Jesus. And Mark is trying to emphasize that the, the, the own family of Jesus, they're outside. There is a distance. Um, and that reflects their hearts too. They're far from Jesus and ultimately far from God. So what we see here in, in the family of Jesus is this, that uh, they are judging Jesus based on their own cultural assumptions and standards as opposed to uh, seeing through the eyes of God, seeing through uh, God's will. And right away, I think it's applicable to us. You know, we hate to admit it, but we do that too, uh, meaning that you know, we have certain expectations on God as well. Uh, and, and we want to tame God under our expectations. You know, for example, you know, we expect God to grant us a life uh, that goes according to our social and cultural norms, don't we? You know, we want to, you know, rightly do well in school. We want to get a good job. We want to find a good spouse and have a nice little family with, you know, good financial stability. That's the expectation that we have and the, the whole society has on us. And we cannot fathom a God who would interfere with that nice little plan and even bring suffering in our lives. We cannot fathom that. And if that happens, we get perhaps angry at God and frustrated and start doubting God because that's not God that is under our control. And also, uh, you know, God can be offensive, uh, you know, again, not meeting our standards. He can be offensive in our culture, you know, meaning, you know, oh, yes, you know, we, we love the concept that Jesus is God of love, you know. And we, we say, stay there, Jesus, you know, be love, right? That's good. But quickly we find out that the same Jesus expects people to be holy, uh, repenting of their sins and living a selfless life. And now that will blow up the minefields of our culture because we're not supposed to call certain lifestyles sins. We're supposed to be tolerant. We're supposed to be, you know, like loving everybody by tolerating their lifestyles. 
So if you're associating with Jesus in that out-of-the-bound expectation, you're going to be accused of bigotry easily. So the question is, you know, what are these norms? What are these expectations and assumptions that we impose on Jesus? Uh, and when we do that, you know, we are basically, you know, proclaiming ourselves to be God over God and trying to align God into our notion rather than us submitting to God's plan in our lives. And Tim Keller, I think this is very helpful uh, in this notion of thinking. He says, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. Do we worship the true God who will disagree with us for our good and for his glory, or is, is that the, the other way around? So the family, the earthly family of Jesus displays uh, this thinking. Then we move on to the scribes. And now we are going to go a little higher up in terms of the level of opposition to Jesus. And this is dangerous now. Here's what I mean. Verse 22. It says, The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. So these guys, scribes, you know, we, we've seen that you know, they're theological experts, basically. And they are not happy with Jesus so far. And apparently it went all the way up to Jerusalem, which is the national center. It's not Galilee anymore, just the you know, local province. Now the national center for theological studies are not happy. So they came down to Galilee to oppose these accusations to Jesus. And the accusation is twofold. One, that Jesus is possessed by Satan uh, or unclean spirit, uh, like verse 30 says. And second, that Jesus casts out demons by the power and authority of Satan, who is the prince or ruler of demons. Meaning that you know, Jesus is no more than just a pawn of Satan. And in their logic, that makes sense because since Satan is like God to his demons, so if Satan is possessing Jesus, then, you know, the Satan has the authority to tell demons to come out of a person or things like that. So that makes sense to them. But that is ridiculous, as Jesus will explain. And it's really sheer uh, conspiracy theory because they were afraid of Jesus and they just bring up these charges. And just as a side note, it's interesting how Jesus responds. He doesn't engage in screaming matches when they bring up these uh, conspiracy theories, but rather he uses something else. We see that in verse 23. He says, and he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? He engages, engages in the conversation in parables, which is basically illustrations and indirect language, softer language than direct confrontation. Something to learn there, right? You know, as we perhaps face different conspiracy theories in our, in our world, in our days, do we just go at them? Or is there a different way, wiser way to engage with the people who have that? But anyways, um, now Jesus will give us or give the opponents the parable to counter their argument. 
So we read verses 24 through 26. It says, If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. Very simple there. It's very clear and simple logic and yet very powerful. Again, in a very wise way. He's saying, Jesus is saying, think about it, guys. Why would Satan attack himself, you know, by casting out his own demons out of the, the people that he has in possession? Doesn't make sense. Kingdom and household of Satan has to stand together. And therefore, there's no way that uh, Satan ordered or entered into Jesus and ordered the demons to be cast out because that would defeat himself. Very simple but profound. The reality is that you know, Jesus is not possessed by Satan, but Jesus is actually the outside force fighting against Satan to cast out demons. That's what verse 27 is saying. He says, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Meaning that when Jesus came with the gospel into the world, you know, he has rendered Satan powerless because Jesus is the king of the universe. He has authority. Satan cannot do anything. And because he has bound Satan in that way under his authority, Satan and demons have no choice but to obey Jesus. And now Jesus, you know, after binding Satan then, he plunders him, plunders his goods, which are people in oppression. And that's what exorcism is. When he casts out demons, he is freeing people, plundering Satan um, you know, from his house. So therefore, the scribes are dead wrong about that charge. So that's disproved. And now, what about the claim that Jesus is possessed by Satan? That's what uh, you know, Jesus will try to disprove in the next section. So please read with me here. Verses 28 through 30, he says this. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they, uh, they, they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never has, uh, never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. This passage is a very controversial passage for a lot of Christians because it sounds like there's an unforgivable sin so that if you commit that sin in particular, you automatically go to hell. There's no second chance. That's what it sounds like. But please follow with me. Uh, it's, again, it's easy to kind of try to see what to avoid, what sins to avoid to avoid hell. But if you look closely, that's not what Jesus is saying. What he's saying is that um, in the context, the scribes had wrong intent in going against Jesus. Meaning that 
describes, you know, they bring up the charge of Satan's spirit possessing Jesus as opposed to the Holy, Holy Spirit. So there's a juxtaposition between the Holy Spirit and Satan's spirit. And when the scribes say that Jesus has the spirit of Satan, that's a gross mischaracterization of who Jesus is. In other words, when they bring up that charge, they're totally getting Jesus wrong, and that leads them to oppose Jesus vehemently. Are you following me so far? I mean, they are getting Jesus wrong. And if, it, if they stay in that direction, then of course they will end up in eternal punishment because they're set in their you know, misunderstanding of who Jesus is. So in other words, Jesus is loving them when he's giving this strong warning. This is a very strong warning, probably the strongest warning that he's ever given in the book of Mark so far. Is loving because unless he were to face them this way with you know, harsh rebuke like this, they will never get out of their misunderstanding of Jesus. And his desire is for them to repent and change and get out of their wrong mindset, lest they face the dreadful judgment in the end. It's kind of like this. Um, and I had a mentor in my old church you know, who was giving me an advice on how to minister to children well, uh, especially during, you know, vacation Bible study. Uh, and just so you know, it's not my forte. I do not enjoy ministering to little kids. Uh, I, I just don't like it. I don't, they don't understand me. I don't understand them. There's bad relationship there. So when I was, you know, put in charge of this, you know, VBS role, I asked my mentor, you know, how do, I, how do I do that? And his advice was this. He said, Aiden, you got to be mean in the beginning. Meaning, you got to be firm in the beginning with them. And once, they, once, once you see that they're fearing you, that's when you loosen up and be fun when you need to be. And I tried that. Um, it kind of worked. Uh, I say kind of because, you know, there are a lot of tears still. Um, but it's still better than, you know, without that advice. Anyways, anyways. But you get the point. What I'm trying to say is that, uh, you know, the children have to know how to fear um, wh whoever is directing them so that, they will not do, do silly things or even dangerous things, you know, without the direction. So it's loving for the instructors to be firm and even mean, in his own words, uh, for their good. And that's essentially what's happening in this passage. You know, it sounds harsh talking about eternal judgment and things like that. But unless he's like that, he's firm and even scary like that, he cannot change them. They will be stuck in their ways heading to judgment. And for us too, this warning can be applicable. 
Uh, I know that if you're here in this room and even joining through your live stream, perhaps you're not in that you know, strong opposition like the scribes, but still there are some rebellious hearts. Um, I mean, on Friday with the young adults, you know, we, we talked about the topic of spiritual apathy, and I was making the case that we must take it seriously because apathy, when it's not dealt with seriously, can become cynicism, uh, where you, bit, bit, you feel bitter towards God. And when the cynicism is not treated well, it's not taken seriously, it can become outright opposition towards God. And, and sadly, I've seen many people falling into that trap. It's, it's sad to see that, and especially during the pandemic, because of the isolation that we all experience. Um, you know, I've seen, I've seen them more often. And, and right there, Jesus would be saying to us, before it's too late, before it's only apathy for now, before it's you know, light cynicism, before it's blank, turn to God. I love you enough that I'm shouting at you right now through these words. Turn. Um, let me talk about this movie called Frozen. Uh, it was such a phenomenal movie. Um, I saw it in movie theater because my wife wanted want to see it. Uh, good movie, good movie. Um, but so I, I don't have to explain the plot, how it goes, right? I think everybody knows how it goes. So Elsa has this power to create ice and snow but he, she has to hide it from people, uh, lest she be labeled like, you know, monster or whatnot. But when she's found out, you know, she has to flee to this mountain. And there she sings the song, let it go, let it go. And uh, she's being herself, right? She has this freedom to do whatever she wants now with, with that power, right? Is she happy? Uh, she was probably happy for a few seconds, but we find out soon enough that uh, that freedom actually imprisoned her, right? She is now, you know, imprisoned in her ice castle. But not only that, that freedom cost her um, to the point that she hurts other people, um, even her dear sister, Anna. And, and uh, there's a scene where she is like, doing something and then Anna gets hit and that apparently froze her heart, right? And she finds out that the only way to reverse that spell is an act of true love. An act of true love, love you know, thaws a frozen heart. That's the, that's the, you know, formula that she was told. Now fast forward. In the end, when Hans, the handsome antagonist, He's about to kill Elsa. Imagine that scene, right? Um, so Elsa is about to be hit by the sword of Hans. Anna sees that she runs, and then she you know, throws herself in front of the sword, and right before the sword hits her, she gets frozen, and you know, Elsa is saved. Um, and then, you know, in a few minutes, she comes back to life. Anna comes back to life because it turns out that that was the act of love that 
was needed to thaw her frozen heart. But not only is Anna back to life, but also Anna's act of love thaws someone else's heart, namely Elsa's heart too. And, and Elsa proclaims at the end of the movie, now I know how to control my power. It's through love. Now I know how to do it. And I share this because we are all like Elsa, aren't we? You know, under the banner of freedom, we like to choose to do whatever pleases us. And through that, you know, we do many things to indulge in different things, but then we find out we are imprisoned. And also our selfish hearts hurts people around us who deserves our love. Where's the hope? You know, Jesus is like Anna. You know, our selfishness wounded, you know, Jesus, just like Elsa wounded uh, Anna. But Jesus loved us to the end, throwing himself on the cross. And that act of love indeed thaws our frozen heart too. And now the Holy Spirit lives in us. We're now able, uh, the Bible says, we're now able, we have the power of Holy Spirit in us, if you have Jesus, to use our freedom well, not to imprison us, but to live for God's glory and to serve others. And in that line of thinking, follow with me, love of God thawing our hearts, the love of God showing in even the warning passage like this that we just read can thaw our frozen hearts too. Love of God thaws our hearts. Love even in the passage of warning and judgment. So if there is any lurking apathy in our hearts, cynicism, and outright rebellion, may God's love, even right now as we hear this, thaw our hearts, his love. But from there on, in the last point, we got to see how we can experience God's love that thaws our hearts even more. So follow with me here. Just a few minutes on this point. The disciples, the third group, the disciples. Verses 33 through 35, uh, it says, And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Again, remember that juxtaposition between the insiders and outsiders. The, ironically, you know, his own family was the outsiders. But we see here the insiders. And these are the people, it says crowd, but this includes the disciples, the 12 disciples that we, you know, studied last week. So these are the disciples who are sitting close to Jesus, making a circle around them, insiders. And there, what are they doing? You know, as they are at Jesus' feet, they listen to his words and he converses with them, with them, and you know they have this relationship, close relationship, in that 
seen. And, and there, there's nothing, you know, hindering between, you know, them and Jesus. You know, they don't put their, you know, own assumption on him like the family did. Or, you know, do they, you know, actively oppose him like the scribes did? You know, their hearts are warm, you know, sitting by Jesus, uh, being loved by him. And their hearts thought, you know, growing in love for him as well. And that's what happens when they're with Jesus. But not only that, not only that, from there on, as they're warmed, they also are going to be sent out. That's what the purpose of disciple means, right? Uh, Jesus sends, sends them out to the world so that they can, you know, share the, the message of the gospel as well and warm, thaw their hearts as well in the world. And here Jesus calls it doing the will of God. The doing the will of God, people who do the will of God are the ones who are near Jesus, who are sitting so close to him to the point that you are warmed by all he says. And in turn, you are sent out to be the warming agent in the world. Uh, yesterday, you know, I went outside uh, to plow the snow in our driveway. Uh, it was a hard thing because our snow, uh, snow thrower, uh, you know, it broke. So it was like, like a foot high snow and it was a lot of work, but hey, I got it done. You know, thanks to my muscles, obviously. Um, anyways, so we, we had a great time. So me, you know, our family, so me, my wife, and, you know, our two-year-old, two-year-old son, Seth, we all went outside and, you know, I was like doing, you know, work and, um, you know, that was helping and Seth was just, you know, having a great time, you know, playing in the snow. And when I got back inside, you know, my hands were really cold, obviously. And so I put them, you know, under the warm blanket and, you know, try to be near like a warm, like, you know, uh, heat source in, in the house. Uh, it took some time, but it got warm eventually. And then later on, um, you know, like Seth loves to go outside these days. So, you know, Deb took him outside again and then they came back inside. And I saw that Seth was like, kind of like a red, like, you know, his cheeks were red and his hands were red. So I went up to him, I held his hands, you know, like I warmed his hands like this and he just like smiles. And, like, ah. <laughs> um, and then I saw, you know, his cheeks were red. So I put my cheek next to his and, you know, trying to warm him that way too. And you know, eventually I just like gave him a hug to try to warm his whole body with my, you know, body heat that way. Um, and then, you know, he was just all happy and just running, you know, around in the house uh, from there on. Uh, I believe that right now, you know, we're near Jesus because we're hearing his word, right? That's what it means to be near Jesus. You know, we are all here, even those who are joining through the live stream, we are near Jesus because of God's word. And because of that, we can be warmed up we can be thought right now in our hearts and from there on the beauty is that you know as we each one of us are warmed up you know we are now the warming agents to one another in the community just as i warmed seth up with my body heat and guess what the bible calls the church the body of christ we're a body and we can warm each other up and from there on 
you know, we are called to go out and warm the world with the warmth of Jesus in us. And my encouragement uh, for us is this. You know, once we go outside, once we leave this place of grace and means of grace of hearing God's word and worshiping with one another, we will go back to our individual rooms and callings and busy week, right? But can I encourage us to still stay near Jesus this week and, you know, this week on, moving forward? Because, um, you know, we, unless we stay near Jesus, you know, our hearts will grow cold again. And again, that cycle of apathy, cynicism, and opposition. And on Friday, um, you know, with the young adults, I encouraged that, you know, we go beyond any, you know, traditional way of, you know, being, being near Jesus. You know, I think the traditional way, when I say that, I, meant, I mean the, you know, it's like carving out an hour in the morning and, you know, perhaps like kneeling down and reading the word and praying. That's great. I love that time uh, for myself. But, you know, we get busy. You know, and especially for, you know, students who are doing fi taking finals and, you know, working people, you're busy. So it's okay to be, or it's more commended to be creative. Um, just do whatever it takes, do whatever is helpful for you to spend time with Jesus through the word and prayer. You know, a few examples, you know, you, you can, if you don't have time to read, you can listen to sermons or podcasts there are just plenty of them these days. You know, it could also mean that, you know, if you need more structure, you know, finding, considering a good Bible reading plan, that doesn't have to be like in order, but there are a lot of creative, you know, Bible reading plans that you can start doing at the, at the beginning of the year that's coming up. And this, this could also mean that, you know, gr grabbing an instrument of your choice, whether it's guitar or, or maybe nothing, and just start singing songs that are based on the Word of God. And the list goes on and on. My point is we can be creative, but the point is that staying near Jesus is worth it. You'll be warmed, you'll be thawed, and you'll love him, and you'll receive his love. And we can be, again, warming agents to one another and to the world. And may God use our efforts for his glory and for our warmth this week and moving forward. Let's pray together. Uh, let's pray together um, just for a few minutes. And, uh, you know, to me, uh, just based on, you know, my studying of God's word, over the years. God loves us. That his goal whenever we come to his presence is to encourage us. Again, even through rebukes, even through perhaps unpleasant feeling at the moment, his goal is always loving us you know, wanting what's best for us to the point that we read in 1 John that God is love. Everything he does stems from who he is, which is love. 
So there's no doubt in my mind right now that in this moment, God wants to bless us. God wants us to get out of the rut, get out of um, those things that are uh, on the way to enjoying Christ. So could we just enjoy God that way? That, man, that's who He is for me. That's who He is for me. He loves me with a love that is bigger than the universe. That He would chase after me. That He would never let go of me. He would even create problems in my life so that I will turn back to Him. That's love. Opposite of love is not hate, but it's uh, ignorance. If He didn't love us, He wouldn't have given us X, Y, and Z in our lives. Those are hard things to deal with, but He knows what's best. Let's pray together, um, and then we're going to just process uh, these things through this song and finish. But can we just use this time to hold on to what we just heard and ask God to thaw our hearts with His love? Let's pray together. One thing I want to encourage you with as you uh, you pray uh, right now, in light of what you heard in God's word. It's just an illustration that the Bible itself gives us in, in regards to you know, growing. Uh, in our context, perhaps, you know, going from frozen heart to thawed, warmed hearts. And the illustration is uh, farming, that you know, we do our parts uh, you know, we, we scatter the seeds, we water the ground, um, you know, we uh, do what we can. But ultimately, uh, it has to be the hand of God, you know, controlling the weather, um, somehow working in the, the chemistry of the plants, and then the fruits come. And I, I really hope that that's encouraging to you. Because I think on the one hand, uh, some of us might be really frustrated. You know, it's like, oh man, you know, I want to experience that intimacy with God. So I do what I'm told to do, um, but I don't, I don't get it. I, I don't feel that. Um, to you know, people like that, um, the encouragement is it takes time. And it is not what we do that ultimately produces the fruit but it's the work of God. It takes time. And it humbles us, right? We're not controlling God to give us what we want, even the spiritual desire. We're waiting on God. And God will, in season, in time, will produce it for you, for His glory. So we pray, knowing that it is His work ultimately. So let's pray, guys, just asking God to you know, warm our hearts 
asking God to draw us closer to Him. To the point that by His grace, we can sing this song with confidence. You are all I want. Man, that's a hard you know, thing to sing. But by His grace, those days come. So let's pray just for a moment before I finish. Um, may you use this time to just hold on to Him, rely on Him, and be warned by his love even right now let's pray together heavenly father we thank you for uh, your unending grace that from the beginning of our lives to the end it is by your grace so that we do not uh, you know, elevate ourselves to the point that we think we're in charge of you know our spiritual lives or you know, things of our lives. We throw them at your feet, casting all our successes and failures that we've had, we will still have, but we can rest in your grace. You will bear fruit. You will thaw our hearts. So Lord, I pray that you would encourage those of us who are discouraged in this room that you would um, touch their hearts and help them remember their first love with you. And for those of us who haven't experienced um, you know, your intimacy in their lives, may you shower them with your grace for them to uh, really know, know you, not knowing about you, but know you personally. May you do that even in seemingly insignificant times in their lives, in their days, in their weeks, just, you know, listening to your word, just even having conversation with their friends where you minister to them, where you are near them. Help them, God. For we trust you. You are our only hope. And thank you that that is true, that we are not our hope. You are. 